sharing your hearts and uh, your music with us this morning, Campbell family. It is quite a testimony of God's grace and redemption, and that's what it's all about. Is this working? This does not work, so just, okay. All right. Well, good morning. Is everybody enjoying your summer weather? I see some have shorts on. It just feels wrong to wear shorts this time of year, but hey, it's pretty warm out there. Uh, everybody I've spoken to, I haven't heard anybody complaining about it yet. So I think we'll take what we can get during this season. Praise the Lord for that. Well, it's been a while and we are in, what book are we in again? Nehemiah. Yeah, you remember. It's been, it's been several weeks since we've been in the book of Nehemiah and we are in chapter 8. We will continue studying chapter 8 this morning. And basically in chapter 8 of the book of Maya, in Nehemiah, we've been looking at characteristics of a well-built heart. And we have found so far, so far that unity is a characteristic of a well-built heart in the Lord because all of Israel, the remnant that returned to the promised land from Persia, they acted as one man. They came together and sought the Lord as one man. And so unity is a part of God's heart. And it pleases God's heart when his people and our church acts as one man in unity. And then another characteristic that we saw in, I think, the first eight verses of chapter eight was a hunger and a desire, a thirst for God's word. And you might recall that all of Israel, men, women and children came together in the water gate seeking the Lord. And they asked the priest, they asked Ezra, the scribe, please read us God's word. And you might remember the little song, uh, we want the Pentateuch, how about you? We want the Pentateuch, yes we do. And that's, an, that's, that's a funny little quip, but uh, these Israel really desired to hear God's word read. So much so that they even built a wooden platform for Ezra to stand upon as he read the holy living word of God. And then in verses, I think it was 9 through 12, we looked at the idea of changing or switching emotional gears. And that's another characteristic of a well-built heart, a heart that's right with God, because there they were hearing God's word, and it brought remorse to them because they realized their hearts weren't where they needed to be with God, and so they were repenting, and they began to weep and cry. And then, lo and behold, in the middle of this wonderful time of repentance, their leaders said, stop weeping. This is not a time to weep. This is a time to celebrate and rejoice. And so they were asked to switch emotional gears right in mid-stride. And uh, there are, God gives us emotions, and they're good emotions. And we don't want to get stuck in just one emotion and try to go through life. But all the emotions have a place in God's plan of redemption. Just watch the very academically inclined uh, movie Inside Out. Who's seen the movie Inside Out? Yeah, probably at least half or more. And you see that in order for proper development, that sad, there's times for sadness, there's times for fear. Fear's going to be a good thing. Uh, there's times for joy. So we can't just, we don't want to get stuck in one emotion and just something happens and then we just live our whole lives sad. Or something happens and we just live our whole lives in fear with just that one emotion. We want to experience all of the emotions. And so a sign of a healthy heart is that we know when to be sad. We know when to rejoice. And then this morning we're going to look at another characteristic of a well-built heart. And I think that you will find that 
in this text, the verses that we'll look at, it is a joyful obedience. A joyful obedience. To have a desire, a strong desire to just hear from God and obey God, that is a sign of a well-built heart. So here are the people in this passage. They've repented of their sin. They've changed the motion of gears. They rejoiced. They celebrated. They feasted. They brought out the choicest wine, the choicest meat on this day of celebration. And now they have come together once again to take specific steps of obedience. We've heard from you, Lord. We see some areas that need to change. We want to line our lives up with you. And they're going to take some specific steps of obedience. And these areas of obedience just happen to land with what I'll call the fathers and the feasts. That's what the passage revolves around. So let's look at verse 13 in chapter 8. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study The words of the law. Now just let that sink in for a minute. What you just read happened. Okay, a minute's up. All right, so what has happened? This is a profound thing. I only gave you a few seconds, but this is very profound in what just happened in Israel's redemptive history. And it's profound that it ever happens in any sphere around. And that is that this time... The men came back. The day before, it was a celebration where all were included. And this time, the men gathered, the heads of households, the fathers. And they gathered, and they gathered with the leaders. The priest describes the pastors. And they are all, all those men are there to what? To study God's word. Now, that is a powerful thing. In Christendom, when men of God are hungry and they come together, thirsting for God's word. Apparently, the the hunger or the passion that Ezra was known for as a scribe poured himself over God's word. He loved God's word. And then the passion that Nehemiah had for God's people to see them rise up and live for the Lord again, it began to trickle down. And now the men... Now the men are feeling the same hunger and passion among them to love God in this way. And this is this is just a huge thing. And the reason it's such a huge thing is because really, for the most part, in order for a whole people to turn their hearts back to God, it requires that the fathers turn their hearts back to God. Why is that so profound? Because God designed men to lead. By God's design, in the book of Genesis, just the very first few chapters of Holy Scripture, we find that God's design is for men to lead. And when men lead in their God-given responsibilities, wonderful thing happens. Now, just the opposite happens when we don't. But when, when we find the three primary, there's lots of ways to slice it and dice it, but three primary characteristics of biblical manhood are leadership, of course, Including spiritual leadership, protection and provision. God placed men on this earth to do that, to fulfill those three roles. And when any of those roles is lacking, then there is a lack in society. There's a lack in the family. There's a brokenness. It's a breaking down and there's a vulnerability 
in one of these three areas. Maybe you might consider them the three-legged stool of manhood. So a husband leads his wife. A father leads his, his family, his kids. And by God's design, there is a built-in respect for men. There's built-in respect. I don't know that I've ever... It's, it's a natural thing for kids to view their, parent, their dad in particular. And, and women have a different role that, that God uses them in. But most kids kind of look at their dads as their hero in the beginning years. Man, you're, you can do so many things that they can't do. They can't believe how strong you are, how smart you can add two plus two. They can't believe you know the answer to that. And you're like this hero. And unless we really blow it. And I know there can be ups and downs, but unless we really blow it, our kids will respect us throughout their lives in one way or another. And it's just because God has put that in there. It's like the, the needle in the compass. You know, it's going to it's going to no matter where you turn, it's going to spin around. It's going to find true north unless there's all this interference and it's not working properly. And unless there's all this interference in our manhood or the way we father or lead then we will have respect from those that we lead. So think back a bit. The day before this passage that we just read, it was the first day of the seventh month, and the seventh month was a month that was filled with feasts. And the Spirit of God moved mightily upon His people as they gathered in the water gate. And they begged Ezra to read them the word of God. Now, this is the next day. And of course, you know, they celebrated. They had a big feast. They did switch emotional gears. Now, this is the next day. Isn't it interesting that often it's what happens the next day that determines how committed people are to God? Have you ever noticed that? Like we, we can hear an, an awesome, inspiring sermon or we can go to a conference or a retreat. Or just have this great time of praise where the Spirit descends and He ministers to our hearts. And we are in the very real felt presence of God. We had a spiritual experience of some kind. But it's often what happens the next day. It's often what we do with that moment that really counts. It determines how far, how far we're going to take it. What we're going to do with what God has done in our hearts. And so this is... The next day. This next day determined how powerful the day before was. So this is the day after the feast of trumpets. The day after the parties and the barbecue and the meat and the red solo cups and the celebration. And the men came back for more of God the next day. Something they they heard the day before woke their spirits up. And created a need, created a desire, created a passion to come back and hear even more of God. And they specifically want to study God's word. They ask the priests again to hear it. So there's this sense where whatever they heard the day before, they want more of it. And that's a lot of times how God's word works. Now, they were broken. That's why they were repenting. They were hearing God's word and they were looking at their lives like, I'm not that man. I'm not that person. We don't know exactly what they read, what passages they read in the Pentateuch, but that's what they walked away with. God's word ultimately does that a lot of times for us. It kind of baits us. 
And it shows us, if you read it, if you take the time to read it and study it, it will show us more than we ever dreamed that we are incredibly more wicked than we ever imagined. That's what God's Word teaches us. But if you continue to read it, you'll find that God is incredibly more powerful and loving and gracious than we ever imagined. And that if we seek Him, there's this promise of better. There's this promise of, of a feeling of a satisfaction. So God's Word kind of baits us in that way. It just leaves us little breadcrumbs of life can be better if you trust me. If you trust me, life can be better. I can bring you out of that. And so it often keeps us coming back for more, even though it's painful to read about our sin. Even though it's, even though it's painful to, to read God's Word and realize, man, I'm way over here and I'm supposed to be over here and... And it baits us and we keep coming back for more. And even though there's a risk involved and it's painful, I think as we trust in God, we realize that God can bring our hearts and our souls to a better place than we can when we call all the shots. When we learn to trust God, this is true of my life and I know it's true of yours. When we learn to trust God, as painful as it may be, he always takes us to a better place. Sometimes better means intense physical and spiritual pain. Sometimes better means going through a season of brokenness. But God is always has us when we follow him. We are always on the trail to better, of course, not just circumstantially, but being a better place in the inner man. Knowing what life is all about and being satisfied in God, even though it is a bumpy ride. So we're baited with this idea. God can take me to a better place and we continue to follow him. So this is a gathering once again in the water gate. It's a smaller gathering. This is really uh, without the women and children there as the day before. This is a men's gathering is basically what it is. It's a men's Bible study. A men's group. Men's ministry, if you want to call that. How did they know to show up? How how just you know how did it come about that just the men were there? Doesn't even tell us. It doesn't say that at the end of the day before somebody said, "Hey guys, let's get to better, let's get together and do this again tomorrow." We don't really know how it happened, but I think we can assume that it was uh, inspired by the Spirit of God that the men just had this sense: I need to come back tomorrow. You know, maybe they were texting back and forth and and a buddy texts his buddy. Wasn't today incredible? Yeah, today was incredible. What do you think would happen if we went back tomorrow and read more of God's word or listened to more of God's word? I don't know. You want to try it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's see what God has in store for us. So, yeah, they texted. I'm confident they texted one another. And they just all agreed this is a good thing to do. And so they went back and they, they sought the Lord again. They, they bore their souls and opened their hearts to God so that he could take them to a better place. So there they are. Now, remind, be reminded also the day before... Was how many hours was the sermon the day before? Six. I don't know how we can't draw the conclusion that the application of this passage is six hour sermons. Six hour sermons is the key to reformation. 
is the key to revival. So after six hours of expository preaching, you remember that the Levites, they went out there and they explained the word of God as it was being read. They came back for even more. And I think it's because as they heard God's word, they realized once again that things weren't quite right in them. They're not as good as they could be there. There's some areas in their lives that are off. And as leaders of the homes, as heads of the households, they're sensing that sense. I'm not the leader I need to be. And there are ways to worship God that I'm not leading my family in. And specifically, it is this feast that we will read about shortly. So there's this lack here. And so uh, Pastor Ezra and the other ministers, once again, they come together and they unroll that scroll of the living word of God. And they begin to read it and to study it among the men. And when they read it, they read about the celebration of the Feast of Booze. And that's when the men really realize that they need help leading their families in this act of worship. Verse 14. And they found written. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And it goes on to talk about how they had not been practicing that as they should. They need instruction. They're reading about this. They're not sure what it means, this Feast of Booths. They hadn't been doing it. Either they hadn't been doing it properly or they hadn't been doing it at all. And so they want instruction. How can I lead my family in this? They need instruction because apparently their fathers, for whatever reason, didn't pass it down. Now, they had been back. They've been back in the promised land long enough where they could have been celebrating this feast. And for whatever reason, this act of worship, this this way to lead your family to God and celebrate this very important feast. And we'll learn more about it next time. It was neglected. Neglected. And so the dads, they didn't know what to do here. I think this is a, a commentary of our current culture. And state, not so much in that we no longer know how to celebrate the Feast of Booze. But in our culture, even more devastating is the fact that what's not being passed down is just how to be a man of God. Just how to be a leader. What's often not passed down is what we would consider biblical manhood. What's it like? By and large, our youth have no idea... What it means, they have no idea what they're doing when it comes to this. And it's said that, and this is actually a, probably an older statistic, but it said that um, one in three American children go to bed without a father in the house. So that's a third, 33.3333%. They don't, they don't know what it's like to have a dad in the house. It's not being modeled. And that, that just includes every household, not even just in the Christian households. So kids will go to bed tonight, this very night, without a father that's active in their lives. That's the culture that we live in. Why is that a big deal? Because the biblical role of fatherhood, again, is to lead, to provide and protect. Now, if you just keep it simple with those three things, if a father is not actively doing those things, then what's happening to the family? 
The family either is not being provided for properly in, in most cases or protected or led. Just basic leadership. And we see this in our culture. It's not, I know this is not news to you. We see the brokenness as a result of broken families in our culture. We're suffering through it. We're confused. We're hurt. We're wounded. A lot of kids grow up very, very hurt and wounded these days. It's serious stuff. It seems so simple when you put it in these terms, but it's so serious and profound that God has empowered men to lead like this and to, to play this role. And when we don't do it, people suffer. Think about provision. A lot of single parent homes these days, if you look at a single parent home where it's the, the mom, look how hard it is for a mom to single parent. You can work two jobs, even three jobs, and, and still lack. You can put your whole heart into it, give your all, and it's still hard to provide for your kids. Because the Bible says, really, it's, meant, it's a two-man job, so to speak. And there's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of vision on what life is and who we are as a family and an identity. And this is what we do and this is what we don't do. And this is why we don't do these things. And this is why we do these things. That leadership that trickles down. And when something's lacking, that family suffers from it. I'll give you one example of protection that really caught my attention a few weeks ago. I was just reading some articles and one thing led to another. And I wound up reading like this article from a, a theologian named John Rankin. Don't know him. Never heard of him before. He is the head of Institute Theological Education. I don't know anything about that. So I'm not an advocate of this guy. But from what, I, what little bit I read, I really appreciated and liked. And he's one of those guys. He's apparently, <clears throat> apparently he's really smart and he's willing to debate the biblical position of things uh, in our culture the things that are particularly being attacked aggressively. So, uh, like the brokenness of home, the marriage between uh, a man and a woman, homosexuality and things like that. He's willing to go and debate the biblical um, position, even in very liberal places. So, he, he will debate at Yale and Harvard and other places. Well, he was debating about marriage. And uh, he says, I, I, I gave my, my teaching. And he is apparently pretty big on not being... A combative type Christian, you know, beating people over the head with the Bible. But he's real big on treating all of humanity with great respect. He thinks that everybody deserves that. And because he uses that method, a lot of times people will listen to him because they just feel safe around him. So he had debated this. I want it was either at Yale or Harvard. And he goes in the cafeteria to eat lunch. And he says, to my surprise, three staunch lesbians came and sat next to me to eat lunch with me. And so apparently and then they just began to pour out their hearts to him. And in the conversation, what they all shared, they had a common testimony and is that they said, basically, I think the, that I am uh, the way I am because I suffered through sexual abuse, either as a child or as a young adult or somewhere in their life. And, it, and he began to ask them questions. And it's like this unspoken truth in that culture that most Apparently have had some suffered some form of sexual abuse and they just were pouring out their hearts and sharing that with him. But the thing that was profound is where he took that if that's true and he's we're assuming that's true. If that's true, then then what started it all? 
And then he began to do some research as he heard these women and their brokenness. And he he just he felt for them and he began to do some research. And what he found was that when it comes to sexual abuse, that uh, it's very low percentage of sexual abuse that happens from the biological fathers, that most of it happened uh, with others that maybe are close by, like an uncle, a relative of some sort, a close neighbor, a step sibling or a stepfather. And then if you trace that, that the, the conclusion is without the, the dad in the home, that the children are vulnerable. And to me, that was a pretty profound link because you think about just the basic role of men to protect their brood, to protect their family, to make sure their kids are safe at night. And when you take dad out of the home, there's that weakness, there's that vulnerability. Are children as safe today as they were 50 years ago? I don't think so. From my experience, and I haven't lived all over the world, um, but from my experience, absolutely not. When I was a kid, our little town, and it wasn't as rural as this, our little town, you know, um, my big brothers and sisters would take me by the hand and walk me to the swimming pool. It was not even a mile away, but you had to go through town to, to get it. You know, they, they might be ten, I might be six. Five or six walking down the street. I wouldn't let my kids do that in that same town today. So there's just this vulnerability there. It is such a powerful thing. Now, who would have ever imagined 60 years ago, 50 years ago, when it was a no-fault divorce and the families were really being attacked and challenged, who would ever dream that this would possibly be one of the repercussions of just an unhealthy marriage? We don't, when we start messing with God's design, we don't always know the repercussions that will happen. Today, there's a surge in the cultural acceptance of homosexuality. It's very complex, but there's no doubt that one of the reasons that we are facing that battle today is because of the battles that were fought or the lack thereof in the days in the past. An abdication of certain roles, and it works all the way around. For a variety of reasons, today we have a, a culture of young folks that don't understand responsibility like they used to. Really don't want it. And rather than protecting people of the opposite sex, they often learn ways to lie and to, to manipulate and take advantage of those that are weaker. And today's culture, in a lot of ways, doesn't really care that much about marriage and family. Just not really even that interested in it, not crazy about it. Um, I sure hope this does not become a craze. You never know these days. But according to the Chicago Tribune, young men are getting vasectomies in their 20s, early 20s, 30s. They're getting vasectomies because they're already that sure. I'm not at all interested in ever having children. 20 years old. Now, there is a law, apparently, that says you have to be 18 to have this operation. Of course, you don't have to be 18 to have an abortion, but you have to be 18 to have this operation, which is, uh, which is very fortunate. But just think about that mindset. What is happening around us that somebody who's 18, 20 years old is already set that marriage is not for me or or at least children this family life is not for me and yet what does the bible hold up when when we give enough time to it and read it 
but the vision of a beautiful family life and all of these relationships that trickle down into the community. And we looked at some of that last time when we looked at friendships. I think when we when we really thoroughly look at Scripture, we read it, we come away with this idea of uh, a teaching about a manhood, teaching about marriage, and we come away hungry, especially as men, for the benefits of marriage and taking dominion. I think reading the Bible often brings out the best in us. It brings out what God planted in us. Now, if we feed ourselves on culture, we're not going to get the things out of our hearts that God has placed. Sometimes they're so far depressed, we forget about them. We forget there's this, there's this excitement of hope and joy, this experience that we didn't even know existed because we have suppressed God's truth so much. And when we read and unveil ourselves to it, God just sprinkles little promises and excitement that this could be yours and this could be yours and you can have this and you could have this. It's a blessing that's written into the design of the universe. And it's an exciting thing. Sometimes our God-given desires are awakened, not just in God's word, but by general revelation. Sometimes they're awakened in the strangest of places, particularly desire just to settle down with a family. I read recently this, I was reading a movie preview, and I happened to read an article about a guy named Jack Black. And if you're a younger generation, you probably know all about him. But I know him primarily as the voice behind Kung Fu Panda. And he's been in some other movies, but Kung Fu Panda. I don't know it's really that spiritual. There's some good lessons in there, but it's entertaining. Anyway, I learned his parents divorced. That is, two older siblings, a sister and a brother, were both gay. And he talked about how his older brother died of AIDS when he was just a teenager and how hard that was. And he immersed himself into a life of destruction, a life of drugs, and he barely escaped that with his life. Um... So that's the kind of childhood he had. He never really knew what we might consider normalcy. But then he realized something very, he recalls something very interesting. I quote, something happened when I was on King Kong. I guess it was a a movie he was in or something. He revealed the fellow who plays King Kong, Andy Serkis, was there with his wife and kids. And he let me read a bedtime story to the kids. And I thought, oh, I should have a kid. I want to have a family. And there was this emphasis that started to develop in him after that. He says, uh, now I'm happiest just swimming with my two boys in the ocean. Apparently he got that family and he has two boys. Isn't it interesting how, I mean, this is a guy that didn't even know normalcy. I don't know where he is, what he thinks or believes in, but... Just just the fact that this dad shared this sacred moment of bedtime story, and that is a sacred moment with the kids. You know, when they're all bathed and they smell all fresh and they got their jammies on or just their diapers if it's in the summertime and they snuggle in the bed with dad and they want a story. And they're twirling their hair and sucking their little thumbs and they're just taking in every little thing. That, that dad tells them and all the stories and they're living life through dad's eyes and through dad's mouth. It's a sacred time. And this is what awakened this guy who seems to be so far away from the things of God. And now he has two sons of his own. You know, when God, when we open our hearts to the things of God, the truths of God that are for our best. 
They are so that we can enjoy the realities of life. We can enjoy the reality of the existence of God, the reality of the domains and the spheres like family and other relationships that he's created. When we open our hearts to God and just follow that trail and take the risk. And it's a risk to follow that trail of truth. Jesus warns us about that. It's a risk because uh, I like the quote from C.S. Lewis. God, God is safe, but he's not a tame God. And things aren't always as orderly as we would like them to be. Sometimes following God gets really bumpy and really, really rough. And it's a life filled with adrenaline rushes and split minute decisions to seek him and obey him. But let's let God awaken the things in, in our hearts that will take us to that next good place, that next spiritual place that God wants to take us. Well, family life, this idea of biblical manhood, it's a, it's a, it's a cool, it's an awesome thing. And what a witness it is when we watch biblical manhood in action. I have benefited from watching marriages before I was married. I benefited from watching men take the lead and truly cherish their wives in marriage. I had awesome examples of that. Very blessed in that area. And there's just nothing like the feeling as a dad that, that, that watches after his kids. And we see it in here. You know, not, it's not just mom's eyes that are darting back and forth. It's dad's eyes too. Making sure his kids are safe. You know, like the, like the drone helicopter, if somebody gets close, man, I'm shooting a missile, you're out of here. It's that protectiveness, and it's, it's God-given, and it's a good thing, and it's a beautiful thing. And it brings out the good things in us, and it helps us to be what God wants us to be in His Word and in His world. I like what I read, um, Mark Driscoll shared this. He said, I got a letter... Got this letter recently from a young woman in this church, and she said, I came to Mars Hill. I was not a Christian. I'd been repeatedly physically, sexually, emotionally abused by my father. I came to Mars Hill as a non-Christian, and Jesus is the first man I ever trusted. Man. That's a good place to start, because he's the only guy you really can Trust 100%. She said, then I realized I wanted to be married and I wanted to be a mother. But I didn't trust men because of what had been done to me. She was living in fear, stuck in that emotion. She said, I met a guy who became a Christian at Mars Hill and his desires were for Jesus and marriage and kids. And he seemed like a good guy. And we got married. She said two things. She said, he's never raised his hand. He's never raised his voice to me or the kids. And he's very sweet. Every night, we've got two daughters. Every night he snuggles with them. He prays over them. He reads the Bible with them. He kisses them on the forehead. He tells them that he loves them. He sings worship songs to Jesus with them. They think their daddy's the greatest man in the world. And she said, almost every night I cry because... I realize that my family's changing and my daughters won't have to deal with what I dealt with because they have a different daddy. I know that 
everybody's story is different and life is confusing and I know that it's complicated and I don't mean to be insensitive to people who haven't had these things, uh, who've been wronged by something that's supposed to be right. But I just know that this is what the Bible teaches about man. And I just know that this is the vision that God paints for us as a church and as a society. And this is what we should be about and this is what our young men should be about. And it includes taking responsibility. And it is a lot of responsibility. Look at the load I just laid on the shoulders of men. Really, God lays that on our shoulders. I remember one pastor saying, young men need to be loaded up. Just like a trailer that you pull behind your truck. Because it drives straighter when there's a load on it. And when you take that load off, it goes all over the road. And God loads men's shoulders with lots of responsibility. Because that's what they need to keep straight. And so we want that vision of biblical manhood protecting the weak. Fighting for justice. Justice, if it isn't right. Standing for these kind of things. Providing for the needy. Seeking God's will for their part in marriage. For their part in bearing children. And hungering and thirsting to be led by God so that they can lead their families as well. I don't know what passage that Ezra read to them that awakened this desire. Of course, in the feast it is found in Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It, he, he, they, he may have read out of Genesis. It might have been the story about Adam and Eve. It might have been you know, the love stories of Isaac and Rebecca and, and uh, did I rape Jacob and Rachel? Nope. I, hold on. Help me out. Yeah, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Ra- Rachel could have been that love story there. But something awakened in them this desire to want to lead their families in worship. And in particularly this act of worship of the feast. And this is a very, very important feast. And we'll learn. I'm not going to venture into it this morning. I'm uh, a little bit out of time here, but we will pick it up again the next time. It's a very, very important feast. We'll learn all about it. But in essence, it had to do with the 40 years of wandering. And they're celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness to the whiners and the complainers and those that were, didn't believe. And they were very ungrateful. So this is a very important feast and a part of worship. And the people of God. So there they are, the men with their hearts open to God's word, taking it all in and a desire to change. It is a joyful obedience. And I want to close just with this. You know, we can look at our culture and we can see a lot of sadness and a lot of grief. But I am encouraged. Because obedience to the Lord is what changes that. And I am encouraged that there are men and young men in this building that have a biblical vision of manhood. And I am encouraged that there are children that go to bed safe in their house at night. They're tucked in, they're kissed on the forehead, they're prayed over and they're safe. And they get to go through this world feeling safe and protected and not have to fight all these other battles that they're really too young to have to fight. I'm encouraged that men are making these kind of hard decisions to bear the responsibility and the burdens of leading and protecting and providing for their family. As it happened, it's happening right here. It's, it's going against the tide of the culture. And it's happening. 
a strong biblical family. And I am encouraged by that. And that's what it takes. It's often what happens the next day. What will our next day look like? What will we do with what God has spoken to us today? That's what counts. May God bless the preaching of his word.